You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 104. Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the author of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can find my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. I'm here in the virtual studio today with J. Daniel Sawyer. Dan is an author, podcaster, and audiobook producer. He's published 17 novels, two short story collections, 23 standalone short stories, and he has another six novels and 15 short stories in various stages of production. He runs a podcast called The Everyday Novelist, where he takes questions from listeners about the writing life and examines the art and craft of writing. His new book is a spinoff from that series, and it's called Becoming the Everyday Novelist, 30 Days from Ideas to Publication. The book is on sale now. Welcome back to the show, Dan. Thanks for having me. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing really well. It's been uh, been a busy couple of months working on getting my uh, my books up on Audible. <laughs> First one's a doozy. After that, it's pretty easy. That is true. It is. It is definitely going much more smoothly on the second one. I think it's because their uh, their documentation is somewhere just this side of written in Klingon. <laughs> All right. So, Dan, this is a how-to book, a self-help book. Who is your target audience, and what is the unfilled need that you set out to fulfill with this work? One of the things that happens with NaNoWriMo in November is that everybody tries to write a book of 50,000 words or so in 30 days. And then they spend the rest of the year revising it and finishing it, and contemplating whether they were successful, which takes a very good thing, practice in writing fast, and turns it into a very bad thing, practice in not finishing and publishing. And so last NaNoWriMo, two NaNoWriMo's ago now, I started a podcast that runs every day at theeverydaynovelist.com, and the first 35 days of the podcast were walking through how to write a complete story in 30 days and then the five-day post-mortem on how to get it revised and proofread proofread and up to the markets very very quickly instead of waiting around all that time well a year went by and i realized that there was a lot i could add to that so those those first 35 episodes got expanded and filled out and completed and a little bit reorganized and they have become this book nice so this is specifically targeted at new writers people who are early in their careers (laughs) new writers yes but also writers that are looking to up their productivity The book walks through the basic story structure of a novel, but in the interstitial times, it also interstitial meaning in between the major plot point turning points in a typical Western novel. I talk about uh, workflow habits, ergonomics, and techniques for writing multiple drafts at once so that by the time you're done, you're actually done. You're not just ready to go and rewrite. So if I'm an aspiring writer or a writer who's looking to up my game, why should I care whether I can write a novel in a month? What does it matter whether I'm writing 1,700 words a day or 1,000 words a day or 250 words a day? Well, in the grossest possible terms, you've only got so many days. 
You don't know how many of those are. You could have another 10 before you walk out in, in front of your house and get hit by a car. Or you could have another 60, 70 years worth of days. But however many days you have, you've only got so many. I guarantee, regardless of what kind of writer you have, you have more stories in your head than you've got days left to you. So the more of them you can tell and tell well, the better off you are, the better off your audience is. And on that off chance that you wind up being one of those writers who taps a cultural vein and lasts for hundreds of years, the better off the future is. So near the beginning of this book, you advise authors to take all of their pre-planning work that they've done on their novel and throw it out before they begin writing. But I know you, Dan, you're in the midst of writing a multi-volume science fiction epic, and I know you've put a ton of work into planning that. Yep. When should writers plan and how should they plan? Well, it's going to vary depending a lot on what story you're writing and what kind of person you are, how your brain works. The reason I advise throwing it out, particularly throwing out outlines and any sort of deep character development you've done, is because when you're working through a plot on the fly and developing characters on the fly, you tend to have access to a level of creative genius that you don't have if you're sitting with uh, role-playing game mechanics or with a piece of paper and an outline and putting stuff together yourself, whatever your process is. And the reason is that when you're doing something other than working through the story itself, your creativity isn't fully engaged. You're wasting cycles. And when you're fully engaged and deep in the story, your subconscious brain will notice things about the story you're telling that it won't notice when you're in a planning overview mapping stage. That doesn't mean that if you're telling a highly complex story, you don't actually need to do some kind of background work or that you won't find, as is the case with the books I'm doing now, that it takes more than just what's happening at the keyboard. In my case, I'm finally finishing a story I have been trying to write for 25 years, and I had the germ of it 25 years ago. I've made four stabs at it, and I've finally grown into it. The feedback loop from those stabs that I've made at it and the story I'm writing now had me writing to a certain point, the story breaking or me not being able to continue, going off and learning more about the things I wanted to tell a story about, coming back to it and trying again. At the beginning, I was outlining everything. Now I'm outlining nothing. And it's not because I know the story so well now. It's because I've grown to trust myself. Actually, a few days ago, I was at a point where I had to stitch two ends because I write out of order a lot. And I had to stitch two ends of the plot together. So I sat down and actually wrote an outline to figure out how I could stitch them together. I sat down to write with, you know, I, I did the outline and put it aside. I sat down to write. And two scenes later, I had completely blown the outline to hell. But the stitching that I was doing was better than what I had planned. And that's what I'm trying to get people to do. It's learning to trust yourself so that you can come up with stuff that's better than what you could plan out. Yeah, that kind of fits with what I've experienced in, in writing some of my own longer works. I start out with the, the key scenes and the key plot points and the key character moments and try to put together an outline to connect those things before I start writing. And then when I'm in the story, I find that I'm I'm moving in different directions. And I've found that it's much more productive to follow those mm -hmm. new directions where they're leading and then course correct where I need to to get back to my key plot points rather than worrying about hitting every single scene that I had plotted out. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm advocating for one step beyond that where you become willing to let those key plot points go. Mm. 
And the reason is that I've I've come to trust that letting key plot points go can sometimes or frequently get you to the point where you make the same thematic points better than you could have if you tried to steer back to those plot points. That's interesting. I'm uh, I'm wondering how that is working on a subconscious level because when you're writing a story that is about something where you're mm-hmm. you know you're trying to unpack and explore a theme I'm wondering if there is still value in the process of figuring out a path to get there because does that pre-prep your mind to find the better path later when you're in the process of writing um does it prior um I don't know. It may depend a lot on the story. The um, book I'm writing right now, the series is a giant future history geopolitical series about the first interplanetary war. Those of you familiar with my podcasts, I'm finally finishing the entire series is what's going on. I had expected that the book was going to be about freedom and government and destiny and espionage and the great movements of history. And that sort of stuff is there. But what I've discovered, much to my surprise, is that the actual theme, at least of this volume of the story, is people trying to find or cope with not having a home. Mm. I couldn't have planned that, but that has turned out to be the resonance that's pulling the whole story together and that's actually driving the geopolitics of the piece. Do you think if that's I had pl- because you you yourself have been uprooted from a sense of home over the last few years, and so that's coming out in your writing? Well, it might be, and it's probably more deeply. It's I've uprooted several times in my life, and it's been a theme that reoccurs in my writing over the years. But I've really got no idea that actually. I suppose it's uh, it's a theme that's at the top of my mind, oddly because of what's going on geopolitically. The world I grew up in doesn't exist anymore. Right. Um, for the second time in my life, first time was the end of the Cold War, and now we're seeing the end of the post-Cold War peace. Those are big movements of history, and it's very unusual to live through two of them in one lifetime. And so that's probably where that's coming from. But I couldn't have planned it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's a, a neat resonance between what we're talking about here and what Lauren Harris and I were talking about in my interview with her a couple of weeks ago about her book Unleash. And she's also got a character who's been uprooted from the only life that she's ever known. And the story is her trying to find her sense of home and sense of place. And we were talking about the fact that this is a particularly resonant theme for our generation because we've gone through so much tumult and we've had so much displacement. The economics of the last 10, 15 years have forced many of us to move places we didn't expect to move, to give up lives that we had had known. You know, there's there's a lot of churn mm-hmm. in our, our social and, systems. Yeah, and the, the, the irony, of course, being that our generation and the one following moves less than any generation in America before that, but we grew up expecting that it would never be necessary, that that was part of the past. And so it's the disconnect between the expectation and the reality, I think, that's gotten us. <laughs> what is it, Buddha said, that expectation is the source of all heartache? <laughs> <laughs> yep. So getting back to becoming the everyday novelist, what's the most important thing that you learned over the course of researching or writing this book? Hmm. I think it was that, uh, that it's easier than it looks what we do. 
that writing fast and writing good is as counterintuitive as it is. It's actually easier to do it than the other way around. And I don't know if it's so much that I learned it while writing this book or it realized something already learned, you know, when you have the, the emotional aha that follows on from something you've known for a while. Right. It, it was like that. But as I was explaining out how the mechanics of writing fast while writing good works, I was uh, struck over and over during the writing process with how much anxiety and performance pressure we, not we as instructors, but we as early stage writers pile on ourselves. And I've figured out why we do it. And it's because there's a disconnect between our tastes, which are highly developed, and our skills, which are not. And because of the effect that fiction has on us, it feels like a kind of magic. And so the reason that we're prone to quit or to keep revising is we're trying to capture the magic because this art form affects us so much where with anything else, whether it's driving or photography or music or, you know, what have you, we understand that it takes hours and years of practice before everything just comes and flows and you look like a wizard while you're doing it. But with this, because the connection of stories to our subconscious and our language development and the way that we perceive our own lives is so deep, it frequently doesn't occur to us, at least not on an emotional level, that writing and storytelling are the same kind of skill that driving a car or playing the flute is, which means that it's a lot easier than it looks if you take away the performance pressure that we pile on ourselves to do it perfect and to be amazing right out of the gate. Well, there's another piece to that, too, which is that playing a musical instrument or driving a car becomes easier because mm -hmm. we automate portions of the process. They move from the conscious mind to the unconscious mind. Yes. And then but, we don't have to think about them. But that's exactly how storytelling works, too. It's just that the fact that it could possibly work that way is invisible to us when we're, uh, when we're new. Why do you think that is? I think it's because it feels to us like a kind of magic. We see other people doing it all the time and it looks flawless and beautiful. And we don't realize how much we do it internally to ourselves. When we come to it, we understand the phenomenon of a story much better than we understand how to tell a story. When we come to driving, we don't understand how driving works. We've seen people do it. We know that the car moves and you steer it. But we understand that this is a complicated mechanical process and we don't expect to get behind the wheel and run a racetrack and be brilliant. When we come to stories, we come with a very sophisticated, even if we come start writing at 10 years old, we come with a very sophisticated understanding of how stories work. But we don't have the skills to tell one that matches our understanding of how they work. And so we start off with a mismatch between our sophistication and our abilities, whereas with driving or with playing a flute, we don't start off with that kind of a mismatch. Right. We expect those things to be hard. And mm -hmm. so we, whereas I think another piece of this is that when you are experiencing a story, you're experiencing it in mm -hmm. your, your conscious mind, that this is, this is all your cerebral cortex that's, that's weaving together all this imagery to experience this event, this story. And so the concept that any of this could be happening on a, a subconscious level seems contrary to the amount of complexity and artistry that we experience in it. Mm -hmm. 
Yep, I quite agree. But yeah, I think writing this book gave me a much fuller appreciation for the profound depth of that disconnect that we all deal with as beginning writers. And so the book actually dwells on that quite a bit. So give us a, a preview of some of the contents of the book. What are some of the, the tips and tricks that uh, readers can look forward to learning about? Well, there's the boring stuff. Like I talk about the basics of how not to die from writing. It's always important. It's just... You mean in a financial <laughs> sense? or No, no. I mean in a literal sense. Writing can kill you. It's as dangerous as, uh, as chain smoking. But, oh, um, right, because of the, the sitting in the blood clots and all that. Yeah, because, yeah, because of the sitting in the blood clots, because of the, um, the opportunities you have to um, inflict paralyzation on yourself or to cripple your hands. You can, get, you can get paralyzed from RSI injuries to the neck from bad ergo. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I talk about boring stuff like that. A lot of the mechanics of how to keep your mind fresh between writing sessions. Um, how to manage your creative energy and your workflow. We walk through story structure. Um, I use a lot of examples from popular films and whatnot, because more people have seen the same films than they have read the same books. Right. I talk a lot about the head games we have to play in order to keep, uh, keep ourselves in the story and particularly the points in the story when it's most likely that you'll bounce out, which is the first third, the middle, and the final third. Mm -hmm. Those are the places where one writer or another always jumps out and is like, oh, I don't want to do this book anymore. Well, there's actually structural reasons in storytelling why those are the parts where most people are prone to bounce out. So I talk about that a lot. I talk about team dynamics with uh, characters. I talk about the abusive relationship that you as a writer are obligated to have with your characters. One of the hardest things for writers who are generally nice people to get through their heads is that when you have a character, the more you like them, the greater your obligation is to kick them when they're down. You are an evil Old Testament deity. <laughs> your job is to sit there up on Mount Olympus playing chess with them and making their lives as hellish as possible. And I run through examples. My favorite is Raiders of the Lost Ark. You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Yeah. One of the best films made in the last 50 years in terms of its longevity, its rewatchability, its memorability, all of that stuff. Why? Because Indiana Jones never wins. Not once in the whole film, not even at the end. Right. <laughs> he goes through jungles infested with snakes. He goes to Nepal. He gets punched out by his girlfriend. He faces one not erstwhile girlfriend he faces one nazi after another he has business partners that hate him he's doing a job for the cia that won't give him any resources to do the job he gets shot he gets punched in the bullet wound he gets thrown off cliffs he gets dropped into a tomb full of snakes he finds the ark of the covenant it's immediately stolen from him he faces the wrath of god literally and then at the end he gets nothing, absolutely nothing for it. <laughs> and we love him because of it. And that's the thing. The audience identifies with characters because they have it worse off than we do. We don't identify with characters because they're brave or handsome or because we aspire to be who they are. We identify with them because, oh, my God, someone else is having a bad day. This, this more than anything else is why Jim Butcher's The Dresden Files is such a hit. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyway, that's so I talk 
talk about stuff like that, talk about uh, all sorts of character psychodynamics. I talk about the way that setting impacts your characterization and the shape of your story. Mm. Talk about matching the stakes of your story to the scale of your concerns so that you don't have Pee Wee Herman chasing his bike across town in order to avert a Nazi plot to save the world. Those two things together won't work. (laughs) So I talk about working at different levels to make sure that your story is all matched in its concerns so that you get better audience investment. I talk a lot about audience investment and mind control, Mm. which is stuff that you typically don't get in beginning writer books. From the preface onward, this book is concerned with two things, managing your own creative process and controlling the minds of your audience. And it's a very direct, each chapter is very directly hooks into one of those two things. And audience mind control is not something you tend to run into until you get to much more advanced stages of writing training. But it seems to me, and it always has, that if you start writers off with that focus, that gets rid of a lot of the early bullshit where you're worrying so much about perfection that you lose track of the theory and process of storytelling. That's what storytelling is. Exactly. You're sitting around a campfire and you're telling a story. You're not trying to stick to an outline. What you're doing is you're watching the faces of the people around the campfire and trying to add things that will make them go. (gasps) Well, do the same thing while you're writing a book and keeping your focus on that audience experience, not in a cynical or um, calculating way, but in a gut instinct way is one of the keys to great storytelling. And I don't think it gets enough play. Also talk about how to write multiple drafts at once. I'm a big believer in it. It makes life so much easier too. <laughs> I still, I talk about that. You're referring to the, the process of cycling back through your manuscript. Mm-hmm. Yep. I talk a lot about longevity and how to do this every day while remaining fresh. That's part of the head games part of it. Cause One of the problems that you will notice with writers who have high output, you'll get some of them like Ray Bradbury, who no matter what they write or when they wrote it, it's fresh, new, interesting, and fantastic. Even if it doesn't wind up being to your taste, it still weaves a spell and it sucks you in. Then you have other writers who seem to peak in their late 40s or early 50s and then just slide downhill and write the same thing over and over. Robert Ludlum was one of these. And the there is a there is a reason that that happens. There's actually three reasons that that happens. One of them is golden handcuffs, which I talk about glancingly. Another one of them is laziness. And a third one is that the writers who wind up writing the same story over and over are writers who stop growing as people as well as as a creative force. And there's ways that you can keep yourself growing as a person. It's uncomfortable. You have to sign yourself up for a life of particularly ideological discomfiture. But what a difference it makes in the way that your writing works and evolves over the course of a life. So I talk a lot about how that works and how to keep yourself fresh and churning. Talk about research. Talk about all the interesting problems that crop up in the final third of a book. Lots of story structure stuff. Oh, and and one other thing. I talk about how being a writer is going to uh, make a difference in who you decide to marry or partner up with. Right. (laughs) And how to avoid divorce if you're already married. Yeah. I was going to ask if there was anything in there about how you write 1,700 words a day and still have a relationship. 
that's actually not the hard part. 1,700 words doesn't take long. I'm doing 5,000 words a day right now. That takes a while. But um, 1,700 words a day is two hours work. That's not the difficult part. The difficult part is that if you're writing from your gut, you're going to come out with a lot of stuff that is ugly or uncomfortable and that you wouldn't talk about in polite society. And I've seen marriages fail because the non-creative partner couldn't handle the kinds of things that the creative partner was thinking about or writing about. But I've also seen marriages and relationships that survived that kind of a shock. And so I talk about what it takes to make sure that your creative life doesn't wreck your home life and why, if you can't avoid it, it's better to stick with the creative life than the home life, which is a bit radical, but I make a case for it. You can take it or leave it as your values dictate. But it's the kind of thing that every creative person I know has come up against at one point or another. So uh, what's next for you? What are you uh, what are you currently working on? I'm currently finishing up in the next two or three days, The Briggs Defection, which is volume one in the Cabracon Ascendancy, formerly entitled The Antithesis Progression. If you were a fan of the podcast, this book basically takes place between chapters one and two of Predestination. And after that, I'm zipping forward to do volume four, five, and six, and we're going to be releasing one per month starting July 1st. I'm going to do all six volumes, repackaged, retitled, gussied up, all fresh and new, and the whole series is going to be done by the end of the year. Sweet. And it's going to be a beautiful thing. Are you going to be producing audiobook versions? Yes. Yes, uh, not not full cast initially. The the full cast will continue on the podcast, but uh, <laughs> the audiobooks I've got to get out fast enough so that the uh, wider paying audience can hear them as the books come out. And I don't have time to do full cast for those. Yeah. So the last time you were on the show was on uh, episode fifty five, which was just a little less than a year ago. Is there anything mm-hmm. that you're doing differently now in your craft or business of writing from what you were doing back then? Boy, a year ago. Let's see. Well, in last year, I've done another four books. I've gone into YA. I wrote my first YA book. The business-wise, let's see. I um, we incorporated the publishing company. That's been a whole fun bit of learning. I mean, fun both in the ironic and in the genuine sense. Uh, I'm doing a lot more audiobooks than I was. <laughs> I'm saving up to buy a house, so I'm doing a lot more client work than I was. But other than that, I'm just writing my ass off, and uh, I'm having so much fun doing it. There's a salutary effect to the creativity when you're in a perpetual high-level flow state. You get ideas faster, really good ideas, faster than you can possibly use them. (laughs) And, oh, it's so much fun. And, of course, I'm still doing the everyday novelist every day. And do you have any convention appearances planned for this year? Not for this year, but um, next year I will be traveling the country, probably doing a documentary on the changing nature of the publishing business. So I'll be hitting conventions and interviewing people and sitting on panels and provoking riots and all that good stuff. Where can people find your stuff, Dan? You can find just about everything I'm doing at www.jdsawyer.net, and you can find the Everyday Novelist podcast at www.everydaynovelist.com. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show again, Dan. It was great to have you. Thanks for having me. Hey there, folks. It's Chris. At the time that you are receiving this, I am going to be in Balticon in Baltimore, Maryland. 
As I said last week, I fully anticipate that this is going to be a fantastic time for everybody who's there. If you made it out, awesome. Then I've probably already seen you or you've already seen me. And if you weren't able to make it out this year, well, there's always next year. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed my interview with J. Daniel Sawyer, and I will talk to you again next week. Until then, keep it on the bright side. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show and want to help me keep making it, you can make a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. The links will be in the show notes. That's our show for this week. I'll be back next time with more writing goodness. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2015 and 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.